Our scripture reading today is from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Amen. Amen, and welcome. So great to see you all. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, my family and I have been out for a few weeks. Glad to be back with you today. Uh, excited to begin this new series with you, uh, the last few weeks of August and through the fall, called For the Love. We're looking at the love of God and the gospel of John, and starting in September, we'll be doing a number of things as a church and a church community is to sort of supplement this and to go along with this. So stay tuned, but today, let's just start here in chapter 1. As an early church historian named Eusebius, I'm not sure too many parents named their kids Eusebius anymore, but whatever, uh, it worked for him. Eusebius preserved the story about the life of John. And John, of course, was an eyewitness of Jesus, wrote the words that you just heard. And as the story goes, uh, in Eusebius' story, John is now an old man. And John, as an old man, had led to faith a younger man from a, a surrounding community to faith in Christ uh, out of an old life into a new life in Jesus. And John had begun discipling him. And one day, John had to go on a trip out of town. He was going to be gone for a while. And so he came to the local bishop and said to the bishop, sort of the pastor there, hey, would you look after this young man and make sure nothing happens to him and you, you, you work with him while I'm gone? And so John goes on this trip. He comes back. And when he comes back, he goes to the bishop and he asks him, hey, how about that young man I've been discipling? Where is he? And, and, and the bishop says, alas, he's dead. Alas, he's dead. John said, what do you mean he's dead? What happened to him? And uh, the bishop says, well, he didn't really die. He's not physically dead. He's just dead to God. Uh, He went back to his old life of crime. Now he's living back up in the mountains uh, with this group of robbers. And no one can get to them without being killed or accosted. And as the story goes, John, in that moment, John did two things. First of all, John tore his clothes in a sign of grief. And secondly, he said, get me a horse. Get me a horse. And despite the the, the protests of the bishop, John rides up into the mountains and he's immediately, of course, captured. But he says to his assailants, it's okay, I wanted to be captured. Now take me to your leader. 
And as he comes up to that young man and the young man's armed, as the, the young man who's armed and surrounded by armed men, when he sees the old man John coming, the young man gets up and begins to flee. He starts to run away and there's this old man John you know, sort of shuffling after him, crying out, you know, wait, uh, wait. He says, why flee from me? I'm an old, unarmed man. Uh, Don't you see there's still hope of life for you? I will gladly suffer death that you may live just as our Lord suffered death for us. Stop, listen, trust me. And Eusebius says that hearing these words, the young man stopped. He threw away his weapon. He began to weep bitterly. And he came back to the village, the community, and to his life of faith in Christ. Now, That's a remarkable story. Pretty amazing, I think. And and I think when we hear that, though, we should ask two questions. First of all, man, how could anyone do something like that? It's pretty bold, courageous. But maybe even more importantly, we should ask, how could John do something like that? Because you may know that John, for many years of his life, was known as a son of thunder. His nickname was like Thunder Boy, uh, Thunder Man. He was an angry, impetuous, impulsive power-seeking person, but here by the end of his life, can you see he's been changed? He's no longer a son of thunder. He's now known as the apostle of love. He doesn't call down fire, vengeance, revenge on his enemies like he used to anymore. No, he goes into the mountains unarmed to bring his enemies home. What happened to him? Oh, come on, simply, John met Jesus. And everything changed. John met Jesus. Everything changed. And so to know the same Jesus who changed his life, John wrote this account, the Gospel of John. And here in chapter 1, from the get-go, he sets out to answer this single question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And that's important to know because to be changed like John was, to have a, a heart and life full of the love that John had, We've got to be able to answer that question. We need to see as clearly as we can the one who changed him. So who is Jesus? John's here. He's going to do what theologians call Christology. That's what he's after. So here we're going to learn four things today. Who is Jesus? First of all, uh, or one through four, he is ancient love. He is blinding light. He's paradoxical glory. And finally, he's living word. He's love, light, Glory and word, here we go. Let's begin and ask, like John is, who is Jesus? First of all, we'll see he's ancient love. Ancient love. Now, later on, as you can see, I'm going to come back to that uh, concept of the word, Jesus as the word, and what that means. But for now, you should know that when John writes chapter 1, verse 1, he's saying that the word is Jesus. Jesus is the word. They're interchangeable terms. So let's read this again, understanding that John is saying that Jesus is the word, and see what that means. He starts off, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, with God, and was God. He was in the beginning with God. What's this show us? Well, this shows us, and here it is, the uniquely Christian conception of God. Uniquely Christian conception of God. This is not saying that Jesus was a God, because there's no article in there, a God, like some cults you may know about have inserted that in the Greek text. It's not there. It doesn't exist. This is not saying Jesus is a God. This is saying that Jesus is 
God, was God, is God. And later on, in the same gospel, later on we see Jesus teaching. He refers to uh, someone called the Holy Spirit as God, not as a God, another God, but as God also, which rounds out this complex picture and shows us this. Christianity says that God is one and God is tripersonal. God is one and tripersonal. There's one God in three persons. John Wesley put it like this. He's the three one God. The three one God. And the writer here, John, he puts it like this. Lots of Johns keep up. He's saying John, 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 Jesus was God. See, too many Johns. Jesus was God and Jesus has been God before forever. He's been God before forever. And if your brain is freezing, getting a little brain freeze, your brain hurts, it's okay. First century people reading this had a little brain freeze too. But let's go a little further. You say, well, okay, what's Jesus been doing since before forever? What was he doing before he came here? Verse 18 tells us what Jesus was doing before forever. It says, Jesus, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father... He has explained him, that is the God the Father. Now, this is the New American Standard. Translation's a little wooden, but I picked it on purpose because it's got this great phrase. This is showing you, before Jesus ever came to explain, before he ever came to show you the heart of God, Jesus was in, John puts it like this, the bosom of the Father. Now, this is a term of affection, of endearment. John, oh, he's pushing your imagination so hard here. It's like almost scandalous. I mean, think about it. Who can come up into your bosom? Hmm? Up close onto your chest, so close that you're not just cheek to cheek. You are chest to chest for an extended period of time. Now, I can count exactly seven people who can do that. My mother, my father, my four children, and my wife. And even with those seven, there's a time limit. <laughs> and if anyone else of y'all tries to sneak up in here, anybody beyond those seven tries to sneak up here into, into my man bosom, uh, it's just, it's going to feel awkward. You're going to have to back up and check yourself before you wreck yourself. Give me some space. Now, obviously I'm joking, but I'm not joking. And I think, I think you get the point. See, John isn't just saying that Jesus was next to the Father, not even uh, you know, around. No, that he's in. He's in the bosom of the Father, in the very center of love. And this is why the Bible can say not only that God feels love, not just that God gives love, but that God is love. From all eternity, John is showing us the Father, Son, the Spirit have been loving one another. One God, three persons, pouring love into one another over and over again in infinitely perfect amounts and ways. Consider how that might make you feel, how you feel when someone you think is amazing, wonderful, talented, beautiful, perfect, uh, like my wife, you know, for example, okay, she's second service, all right, just shameless plug there. Uh, when you get the ultimate compliment, right, from, the, from someone, from the sincerest place of admiration, think about what that does to you. Now, uh, a long time ago here, for example, in this church, uh, there was a, a worship leader here named Israel Houghton. And you may know that name. You're thinking he was here. Yes, he was. Uh, and Israel was here. If you don't know that name, he's like won Grammys, wrote a zillion hits. He's all over the world. He's a big deal. And of course, yes, again, I'm shamelessly name dropping him here for a reason. And years ago, back in that galaxy, far, far away, same time, I used to be the bass player here. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> See how that works. It's a little back and forth. All right. 
Not because I was great. Matter of fact, you sit and think, man, you're, when, why don't we get him back up there? No, I don't deserve to even plug these guys' amps in. They're that good, that far uh, above me. But uh, not because Israel chose me. He didn't choose me. I, I was assigned to him. <laughs> but as the saying goes, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> No other bass players? I'm the one-eyed man. All right. Anyway, uh, one Sunday after worship, Israel, in front of the whole team, he looks at me and he says, you know something, man? You're not too bad. <laughs> I just about fell over. Shock, surprise, gratitude. My head swelled like 10 sizes. You're saying, Morgan, all he did was say that you aren't terrible and horrible. I know. And I don't care, right? That. <laughs> The fact that someone like that would say something good about someone like me meant everything. And you know what? Not only, as you can see, am I totally living off it 10 years later, I don't even care what you think about my bass playing. Because if Israel Houghton said it, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you say. Right. Now think about that picture. Someone affirming someone else in the company of other persons. Not only is that a snapshot of Trinitarian love. But John says, Jesus came to explain that to us, show that to us. Now I'm going to sort of pause here and stop here. The implications of this idea of ancient love are almost infinite. And by the way, next week I'm going to focus almost exclusively on the practical implications for your personal life. But right now, today, let me just give you two. Let me just give you two quick implications of ancient love for your life. First, here's what ancient love means for the world. The world, here's what I mean. It shows us that the universe was not made from chaos like the, like the ancient Greeks thought. The ancient Greeks thought, you know what, there's like this pantheon, group of gods. They're all competing for power. They're fighting for position, and that's how the world got here. That's how humans got here. And later on, the the great Christian, the African philosopher named Augustine, he looked at that, he looked at the Romans, he said, well, no wonder your culture is so violent. It's based around power. It's based around power and chaos, not around love. See, the Trinity means the universe. It means you and I. We were made for love, from love. And to the degree, therefore, you understand this ancient 3-1 love, to that extent, you will understand yourself and why you're here. Second, here's what ancient love means for us today, right now, for this church, for Mosaic Church. Listen, as a multi-ethnic church, ancient love means that diversity within unity is possible. It's possible. Matter of fact, it's actually a picture of how we ought to relate to one another. Because in the Trinity, you've got what? Three distinct persons, the Father... Father giving limits, a son giving grace, a spirit giving power. They're diverse, yet one. Diverse persons, yet one God held together in unity by love, by service, by the promotion of the other above self. What changed John? What can change us? Let me submit to you, suggest to you. It's an encounter with Jesus, the ancient love. But second, what did this ancient love come to bring? What did he come to bring uh, alongside love, in addition to love? Second, he came to bring, John puts it like this, he came to bring a kind of a light. We'll call it blinding light. Now, we're moving on here. You know, just to uh, spoil it all over, because you probably like that first point. Love's good, funny jokes, all that. I liked it too. But it may get a little dicey here because John leads us to this, mm, this difficult part here. And by the way, it's good we're looking at this. Sometimes it only gets pulled out at Christmas. 
When you're only shopping and decorating and baking and eating, and this kind of washes over you here, but this has a level of offense. And John says, you've got to wrestle with this, because if he didn't catch it, John actually, in this passage, describes Jesus as one thing more than anything else. He says, he's light, over and over again. Look at verse 4, for example. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, of people, humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Your translation may say overcome it. There was the true light, John calls Jesus, which is coming into the world, enlightens every man, every woman, every person. See, John's saying this. Here's the offense, so you won't miss it. He's not saying true light is within the world, that true light grows within you on your own. Or that people are the true lights themselves. He's saying, no, the world is so dark that true light had to come from the outside in. He's channeling the prophet Isaiah. It says, upon the people, a light has what? Not emerged, but dawned, right? A light's dawned on them. And this is how dark the world really is, John says. When true light came into the world, humanity didn't receive true light. Humanity tried to kill true light. We tried to put it out. Why? Because the human heart, John is saying, The human heart is a spiritually and morally dark place. And if you disagree with that, it just shows you you haven't read the news lately. Do you believe this? Do you believe your heart is utterly dark without Jesus? See, most of us, most of us, we don't even know what utter darkness, what real darkness looks like. Let me try to illustrate it for you. A hundred plus years ago, 1914, there was a British explorer uh, by the name of Ernest Shackleton. He and his crew, Shackleton's crew, took a trip to Antarctica. They were polar explorers. Their their, their plan was to land, uh, walk across Antarctica cross over the South Pole to the other side, but they had to abandon that plan when their ship, called the Endurance, maybe you've read the book of the same name, uh, caught, got caught in the polar ice. Here's a picture of it. It was crushed. They had to abandon ship and walk across Antarctica. Over the following months, Shackleton and his crew fought to just to survive. His, uh, he said later, of all the difficulties of uh, the starvation, of the unbelievably frigid temperatures. You think it gets like cold here in Texas when it drops below 40, some of you know. That's not what this is. No, this is the darkness was the worst thing they faced. Because near the South Pole, the sun you may know goes down in uh, mid-May, doesn't come up until late July. There is not a shred of light for more than two months at the South Pole. There has been a bunch of polar explorers. They've all said the same thing. They said there is no darkness like the polar night. Only those who have experienced it can understand it, what it means to be without light for weeks, for months. It drives people mad. They said, you can't see where you're going. You have no direction. You cannot see yourself. You begin to lose your sense of identity. You question your own existence. You begin to go insane. See, without light, we begin to be disoriented. And if light does not break in, we begin to disintegrate. Human beings fall apart without light. And that's why here John is saying that Jesus is true light. See, John's pressing you to the point of offense. Without Jesus, he's saying you're blind spiritually, blind morally. And it goes further than this. It goes on in the book of Revelation to make a case that darkness also has a certain trajectory to it. It grows and spirals downward. And that living in darkness in this life grows into eternal darkness and eternal spiritual disintegration in the next. That's where humanity's headed. Hear me, that's where you're headed. That's where I'm headed. If true light 
does not break in. So what are you going to do with that? Huh? What are you going to do with the light? Will you push it away? Will you shut your eyes to it? Some of you may be saying, I can see just fine without it, Morgan. Ship shape. John would say respectfully, no, you can't. For those of you uh, who have taken uh, Philosophy 101, you probably read, forced to read Plato's Republic, the Greek philosopher Plato. And Plato put it almost like John, Plato, great illustration. Uh, he, said, he said, humanity, it lives in darkness. Plato said it. He said, humanity lives in darkness. We're like people living in a cave who only get glimpses of light, glimpses of truth, like a, like a candle flickers behind you, cast some images that are vague on a wall in front of you. But Plato said, imagine if, imagine if a man walked into the, a dark cave from the outside and claimed there was a true light and a better world and a real way of seeing full of, uh, of truth and warmth and, and color. And Plato asked, what would happen? Plato said, that guy, that girl, that person would be ridiculed. They'd be mocked, scoffed at, and ignored. He said, why? He said, because people love living in darkness more than they love light. And what John is saying here, he's saying what Plato intuited, it's true, except even more so. People love darkness so much, true light had to come. Jesus, as light, shows us we can't save ourselves. For that reason, he came into the world. That's number two. Now, let's transition. Some of you are saying, thankfully, finally, got a little squirmy there. All right. How, though, did he come? What, what, what form did the light take? The light took a form. John tells us that of any form, the true blinding light could have taken. It took a form, we'll put it like this, of paradoxical glory. Paradoxical glory. Let me unpack this. Look at verse 14. John goes on. He says, and the word became flesh dwelt among us, we saw his, here it is, glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And by the way, if you wanted to summarize the Bible in four words, there it is. The word became flesh. There it is. Jesus became flesh, and this is literally, this is sort of stomach churning. Flesh is like, is the word meat. He's saying, into meat, Jesus came. He became incarnate, uh, carnate, incarnate, uh, into meat. He came and he dwelt among us. John's trying to blow your mind here. John's taking a, a, a noun and making it a verb. It's the Greek word for tabernacle. We get it as dwelt. John's saying he tabernacled. The meat became a tabernacle. So what he's saying, and dwelt among us, he's saying like that tabernacle in the Old Testament where the high priest was and the Ten Commandments were and the glory of God came and all that stuff. He said, if you could wrap up the, the altar and the priest and the commandments and the glory of God and shove it and shoehorn it into a body, that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. Now, perhaps some of you, maybe you've read a, a book called The Tipping Point by the Jamaican-Canadian author Malcolm Gladwell. Let's hear it for all the Jamaican-Canadians today. What a great combination, right? We're all rejoicing. Uh, but Gladwell talks about the infamous murder, maybe you know the story, in New York, 1964, of a woman named Kitty Genevieve. Uh, Genevieve. And he says, he goes on in the book, he's talking about it, and he says, the facts in the case of the murder are clear. <clears throat> he says, Genevieve was chased by her assailant, and attacked three times on the street over the course of half an hour, meaning she was stabbed, the assailant left, came back, attacked her again, left, came back, and finished the job. As 38 of her neighbors watched from their windows, and during that time, however, none of the 38 witnesses called the police. In Glowell's book, a chapter of it anyway, takes a look at why no one came to her aid, and he quotes New York Times editor Abe Rosenthal. Abe Rosenthal says, here's why no one came. 
He says, nobody can say why the 38 did not lift the phone while Miss Genevieve was being attacked, since they cannot say themselves. It can be assumed, however, that their apathy was indeed one of the big city variety. It's almost a matter of psychological survival if one is surrounded and impressed by millions of people to prevent them from constantly impinging on you. And the only way to do this is to ignore them as often as possible. Indifference to one's neighbor and his troubles is a conditioned reflex of life in New York as it is in other big cities. Now, if you read the book, you know that Gladwell, others actually disagree with that perspective. They take exception to it. They debate the whole thing because it was complex. But hear me, the one thing no one debates, the one thing no one argues about is that no one came down. No one came down. They all have their reasons why they think no one came down, how the situation might have been different if someone come, came down. But the facts remain that at least 36 people, 38 people heard and knew someone was being murdered and they did nothing. One woman who was interviewed said this. She said, I was afraid of what would happen if I got involved. And you know what? She's right. Something awful could have happened. Something tragic or fatal could have happened if she came down. Oh, but do you know, can you see now what John is saying, what the gospel says? It says that Jesus Christ has heard our cry, heard us crying out in darkness and pain, and he has come down. This is saying the word became flesh. It became touchable. It became hurtable. It became vulnerable. It became killable, was touched, hurt, and killed because he came down. Jesus means that God, yeah, God has heard our cries and has come down. And how then did he come? Oh, here's the paradox. Full of, it says, grace and truth. Truth and grace, grace and truth. And this tension here, this is so hard to to live out. This is flat out why it's so hard to follow Jesus because it's nearly impossible for people to hold these two things in perfect tension, to hold grace and truth, truth and grace together. Listen, churches split over this. And maybe you know this. Liberal churches, for example, uh, liberal churches theologically, sociologically, they tend to focus only on the the grace and the goodness and the kindness of Jesus, but they, they let go of truth. And people are only half changed at best. They may be nice, but they lack the power that truth brings. And on the other end, conservative churches tend to focus only on truth, on absolutes, on right and wrong. But they tend to let go of the grace of God. And people are only then half changed at best. And they lack the life-changing power that the grace of God brings. But John 1 then shows you not only that we need both, but it shows us why we need each other as people here from different ethnic backgrounds as well. Because if you today, if you are from a majority culture church, if the church you grew up in uh, is full of mostly or all white people, you probably grew up. You're used to hearing about Jesus as God, right? Jesus as divine, as the one you obey and follow. And do you know what? He is that and is not less than that. But let me tell you, white churches, as as I've come to discover, even white theologians stumble over the humanity of Jesus, the one who bleeds in the garden, who questions the will of God, who identifies with the poor and himself, who is weak and has limits. But let me tell you, people from black and brown churches tend to understand far better the humanity of Jesus. Why? Oh, it's because they have been on the underside of power too culturally. They know what it's like to be ground down from forces upstream from them outside their control. And yet, at the same time, many times, black and brown churches, theologically speaking, can stumble over the divinity of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, the Godhood of Jesus, because he's not just human, he's also God himself. Grace and truth, God and human, full of both. It's a paradox, isn't it? It's paradoxical glory! 
But John says, if you'll hold this together, it can change your life like it's changed mine. You say, how can I get that? How can I get all of that? Let's put it all together. Finally, number four, you can get that power in your life through the living word. And remember I said we'd come back to it here. We are as promised. You may know that the word that we get for word, capital W, is really the Greek word logos, where we get our word logic, other words. But it meant something specific. The logos was like a, like a term you could trigger people with in that culture. You'd throw that word out like a hand grenade at a party. People would erupt over it. See, the logos was a term used by the Greek people to sort of talk about, discuss how the perfect life could be lived, should be lived, how a person should act. The Greeks basically said, you know, there's a perfect way, a just way, a right way to live life, a right way to make it, and the way to discover it is sort of like um, thinking about like, a, like how a soup should be made or the perfect loaf of bread should be baked. There's an impersonal recipe out there, and the way we get it is to figure it out and discuss it and debate it. It wasn't personal. We just talk about it. But remember, John wasn't just writing to Greeks. He was writing to Jews as well, who knew that God was personal after God had personally invaded lots of people's lives in their scriptures. Noah, right? Abraham, go do this. Moses, he gave them what? The 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. But they, the Jews, never thought that God would ever become a human being. It was blasphemous. Oh, but to hear now, the Jews and the Greeks, John is offending everybody. He's saying, not only is the Logos real, not only is the Logos become a person, he's so personal. He's got a name. It's Jesus. Now you say, okay, you're getting worked up. What's all this about? Unless this is you. There's a very smart atheist French philosopher, and aren't they all, by the way? Uh, Luke Ferry. And Luke Ferry speaks for a lot of people. He writes a whole chapter in his philosophy book about the Logos, and he says this. He says, perhaps this distinction leaves you stone cold. After all, what does it matter for us today that the Logos came to mean Christ? as far as Christians were concerned. He says, by resting its case upon a definition of the human person and an unprecedented idea of love, Christianity was to have an incalculable effect on the history of ideas. For Greek thought in general, the idea that the Logos could designate anything other than the rational order of the universe was unthinkable. In their eyes, to claim that a mere mortal could constitute the Logos or the word incarnate as the Gospels express it, was insanity. What exactly, he asked, was at stake in this apparently innocent change in the meaning of a single word? The answer, nothing less than a revolution in the definition of divinity. The Romans, he says, for their part, did not hold back from massacring Christians on account of their intolerable deviance. For this was a time when ideas were not playthings. See, Ferry, he freely acknowledges, even as an atheist philosopher, John won. It changed the world. You say, well, fine. Well, how can that, if I believe that, how does that change me? Or even how can that change the world? How can believing this, the word made flesh, change the world, make it a better place? In July 1941, during World War II, there was a man who escaped from Auschwitz, the German concentration camp. And you may know that the the Nazis' protocol on that day to discourage people from escaping from their camps was simple. If one man escaped, they would kill 10 men back in the camp. So if you escaped, if you got away, you would know it would be at the cost of 10 of your friends' lives. 
So after the escape of this one man, all the men are looking like bags of bones. The Nazis figure out the guy escapes. They call all the men out of the barracks before uh, the guards. And the Nazis call the first nine names that are to die. And then they call the tenth name. And when they get to the tenth name, it was a man by the name of Franzicek Gajanacek. And Gajanacek, the story goes, falls to the ground. He's starving already without any dignity. He begins to beg them for his life. He grovels. He says, no, I'm married. I have children. I am young. I beg you, don't kill me. And behind Kajanacek, a man broke rank. The man stepped forward. Everybody could see him. His name was Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Christian priest, 47 years old. And Father Kolbe was known to give up his meager food rations to those who were hungrier than he was, known to give up his blankets to those who were colder than he was. Father Kolbe was in prison for hiding and aiding Jewish people from the Nazis. He was caught hiding Jews, and therefore he was imprisoned alongside all the other Jewish people in Auschwitz. And Father Colby, the Christian priest, was so sacrificial, he became known to those incarcerated Jews there as the Christ of Auschwitz. The Christ of Auschwitz. And he steps forward silently. He takes off his cap. He stands before the commandant. And he says this, and here's the quote. He says, let me take his place. He has a wife and children. I am not married. I am not a father. He is young. I am old. Take me. Gajanacek, laying there in the dust, he could say only later, he could say, he said, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned, could hardly grasp what was going on. And Father Colby was dragged off to a wire box with those other nine men, like something like a dog kennel, left to starve in public because the shrieks and the moans from the dying men were designed to discourage and frighten the other prisoners into not escaping. And Father Colby spent the next 14 days singing hymns, praying with the other nine men, as all of them, one by one, starved to death, leaving only Maximilian Colby alive. And at the end of 14 days, when he was still alive, still singing, still breathing praise to God, the Nazis plunged a lethal injection into Maximilian Kolbe and tossed his body into an unmarked grave. He would be, as far as we know, the first man who had ever offered his life for another. In the history of Auschwitz, as far as we know, the only man. And Kajanacek, well, he would actually live to be released from Auschwitz and his sons were all killed, but he reunited with his wife. He found her and they went back and made a new life in Poland. And when he got back home, Kajanacek got a rock. He put it in his backyard and he affixed a brass plate to it with two words. The two words that were engraved were the name of his savior, Maximilian Kolbe. Kajanacek said this, He wrote about it and he said, quote, because of Maximilian Kolbe, every breath that I take, everything that I do, every single moment is to me like a gift. What had happened to Gajanacek? Well, for him, hear me, the word became flesh. Word became flesh. In a smaller way, God put skin on him. It literally saved his life, transformed the way he lived. Has this happened with you? With Jesus today, huh? Do you know that for you? Do you know that for you on the cross, the word became flesh, ancient love came apart, and that Jesus was cut out of the bosom of the Father so that you could go in? Do you know that for you, the light of the world died in darkness? The Gospels record that a literal darkness came over the land that day so that you could have true light. Do you know that for you, glory itself heard your cry? And has come down for you. 
Do you know that the word came on and took on flesh then to point the way also to how to live in life forward, going forward. The way to following him might just, like for Father Colby, mean giving away what you have, your food, your clothing, your breath, even your own life for the sake of another. Have you received him at the center of who you are? See, John did. And it changed him. Let me tell you, this means that even a son of thunder can become a lover of God. It's true for John. It can be true for you. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused him pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, Shits die for me.